The Gospel of Luke, it's, it's, uh, it's unique as it opens with a prologue. You don't get that in any of the other ones. It opens with a prologue, and it starts by stating the why of his account of this gospel message. He wants to let the readers know why he's actually writing this, that God has inspired him to write an orderly account of the life and the works of Jesus, their Lord and Savior. So let's just go ahead. Sometimes we could jump over these first four verses before we actually get to the, what, what we're really going to look at tonight. And that's just uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, the example, actually, that they are for us. Sometimes we could just look to like, yeah, they're the mom and dad of John the Baptist. Yes, they are. But there's a lot more to their life. So let's go ahead and start chapter 1, verse 1. And let's read the first four verses. And it says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. And it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed, the certainty of Christ. So Luke, as an inspired biblical writer, notes that he used all available resources. It's unique with him, right? He says here he used eyewitnesses, and he used ministers to write this narrative of the life of Jesus. And what I want us to understand is that the reason why each narrative, if you read each one of the Gospels, like you just sit down, you're like, I'm going through it. I'm going Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reason why they feel so different is why? They're written by different men. God inspired Every single one of them by the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. But what I love is he used them as they were. God used those writers just as they were. Otherwise, the Bible would begin to feel very robotic. But it doesn't. It's got that that life to it. And this this is one of those things I love, right? You get to John chapter 20, right? I love this one, right? This is after Jesus has been resurrected and Mary Magdalene seen him and she comes back. She's like, the Lord's risen. The tomb's empty, right? And then there's a race to the tomb. You all know this, right? Peter and John race. And they, we get that little nugget that we find out, right? Somebody was a little faster. No theological necessity to that little piece other than to let us know somebody was faster than somebody else. But that same person, when he gets to the tomb, isn't afraid also to say that when he got there, he's the one who pumped the brakes. He's like, nah, I don't really want to go in. And so the slow one, when he gets there, Peter, he just barges right in, looks around at everything. Once he sees, well, it's safe for Peter, he goes ahead and takes a look. So we get this feeling. We know who they are. We can hear it in their writing. We get a little flavor of their personality. I love that. Luke was a physician. Luke was a doctor. And what we know with like doctors is that they love and they have a care, or they should have a care, for their patient. 
And so what you see is as you go through Luke's gospel and as you read it, you really see the tenderness of Jesus towards the people he ministers to. Why? Because Luke has that same feeling. When he sees Jesus have that compassion to the person that's hurting, that needs that healing touch, you feel that from Luke. Why? Because he had that same feeling when he saw somebody that was in need that needed a touch. But Jesus' touch is way Way better. And I say all of this. You're like, wow, that's a lot, Jamie. I don't know what we're doing. I say it as an encouragement. This should encourage you to let you know that when God calls you and I, he uses us and he always desires to use you as you. He wants to use you as you. And uh, when I first started teaching... I didn't know how to do it. I, didn't, I don't have any real training in teaching. I love the Lord. I sat under good teachers. I watched it. So my thought was I should probably imitate somebody really good because that will be great for others. They don't want to know who, me. So I loved Damian Kyle. Now, if you know who Damian Kyle is, he's very slow and almost monotone in his speech. I am not. If you've been here now the last five minutes, you could probably tell, a little more animated than that. So, but I loved him as a teacher, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to teach like him. And then when I finished and I got off and my wife came to talk, she was like, what was that? Who, who are you? I'm like, I'm Damien Kyle. Couldn't you tell? But the point is, God didn't want to use me as Damien Kyle. He wanted to use me as me. He wants to use you as you. This is just a wonderful thing. We, we have to just come. I had to come to the place where I could rest in the fact that God just wanted to use me as myself. I had to come to the place, right, where, where we need to understand that we are uniquely made, Right? I have been fearfully and wonderfully made by the creator of the universe. He knows how intimately he's made each one of us, and he wants to use us as us. That should just encourage you. You don't have to change those things in your personality. So I want to take those things under the power and control of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to use that for my glory. And he gets the glory, right? Because he's chosen to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and here we stand. That's what the Lord does, is for his kingdom and glory. God was always leading Luke by his spirit. In every conversation he had as he gathered all the information and as he put the pen down to begin this gospel account, that we can know with certainty that this is the inspired word of God. And so Luke's account starts, and this is where we're going to spend our time tonight. It starts with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And there's so much we're going to actually be able to glean from John's parents. We're going to glean some good stuff, and then we're going to glean some things that we shouldn't do. So uh, let's go ahead and keep going. Verse 5, let's read through to verse 7. And there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, who was of the division of Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, 
walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So he starts out here, he lets us know that the clock starts with Herod. And so this would be toward the end of Herod's reign, so we could roughly place this around the time, let's just say, 4 B.C. If you want to argue it out, that's fine, but roughly around there. And we have Zacharias, and we have Elizabeth, both of a priestly line, and it says that they're both advanced in years, and they had no children. This is a big deal. We need to understand that in this time and in this culture, there were few things that would bring more sorrow than not being able to have children. It was something they truly desired. This was how your name was passed on. This is how your heritage would have been passed on. And for the Jews, the possibility that your son could be the Messiah. So there was a desire to have a child, especially a son. And for them, they looked at the stage of life they were in, and all of this just appeared to be an impossibility. Have you ever had things happen in your life where it just feels like an impossibility? It's not. It's not. Not with the Lord. Not if the Lord has plans. He can use that impossibility for something possible for his glory. But what I want us to notice here, in verse 6, we see their reputation. It says they were both righteous before men. No. It says they were righteous before God. And as far as the law and the ordinances of the Lord, they were blameless. And this shows that they were not interested in the religious externals or how man might have perceived them. This is how they stood before God himself. They stood as righteous. And this demonstrates truly the love that they had for the Lord, that it was really sincere, that their love was genuine. And I just think about this. Year after year after year, No child. People looking on, wondering what's wrong. What's going on with them? Why can't they have any children? What have they done to not have the favor of the Lord in their life? And they could be a couple that would just be full of bitterness, frustration, to be angry towards God. Why us? Lord, why not somebody else? There's so many other people that this could happen to. But why is it us? But we clearly see that their circumstances did not affect their worship. Their circumstances did not affect their love for the Lord. It didn't affect their faithfulness. It didn't affect their obedience. They were never swayed in any of these areas because of their circumstances. They continued to keep their eyes on the Lord. We can say that they loved them. They loved him wholeheartedly. And that this was demonstrated that in spite of their circumstances, they were going to worship, they were going to serve, they were going to obey, and they were going to walk faithfully to the Lord. That's amazing. And what a challenge that is for us, isn't it? 
It's a challenge. We can be so circumstantial. We can base what we're going to do, how we're going to act, how we're going to worship, if I'm going to be faithful, will I obey? It's all going to depend on my circumstances. Well, do you run to the Lord or do you run from the Lord when the circumstances get tough? That's a good indicator. Do you want to be closer to him or farther from him? Where's your heart? Am I willing to faithfully worship and serve the Lord no matter what's going on in my life? Or do I just kind of draw back from time to time because I don't like the way things are going? And sometimes we can find ourselves trying to enter into negotiations with the Lord. You ever negotiate with the Lord? I am, right? Lord, if you just do this or that for me, I promise you I will be your most faithful servant ever. I know you've got some faithful ones out there, but if you just help me through this one thing, I'm going to be your most faithful servant. I will be the best worshiper you have ever seen worship in your whole life, Lord. We want to negotiate. But here's what we need to do. We need to say, Lord, I love you. Lord, I just, I love you. Lord, I trust you that you know what's best for me. And I'm going to worship you. And I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to obey you no matter what. Because you are the potter and I am the clay. And what you do with me is your business. My life is yours. Do as you please. And that's the place we have to come to. Where he has that freedom to just work in our lives. And here we have a wonderful example of two people who walked faithfully year in and year out with the Lord. And they didn't allow their circumstances to dictate their worship and their service or their love for the Lord. What a wonderful testimony. And listen, it says they're blameless. And understand what blameless is saying. Blameless does not mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth were perfect. But what this is saying is that their worship and their service before the Lord, that you couldn't find any deficiency in it. That's amazing. That in spite of all that was going on in their life, when they worshiped the Lord, when they obeyed him as they served him, nobody could look on and go, yeah, but there was no deficiency. They served him wholeheartedly. That's the way we should be doing it. So before God, it says in verse 6, they were righteous. So let's keep going. Verse 8. And so it was that while he, Zacharias, was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went to the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So let's not minimize how important this day was for Zechariah. He's an older man. He's of the line of the priesthood. And the lot fell to him finally to go up and to burn the incense in the holy place. This was the greatest honor that Zechariah would ever have in his life in his service to the Lord. Because this opportunity, if the opportunity even came up in your lifetime, happened one time. 
Boy, is he in for a treat when he gets up here to burn the incense. So he's here burning the incense, it would seem, at the evening prayer. He's in the temple praying and performing his priestly duties. And a great multitude is outside praying also, it says. So we've got prayer going on all around. And listen, when we see people united in prayer, we should be ready to see God work. When people are united in prayer, get ready. When we come to the prayer meetings on Sunday nights, if you're out here on Sunday nights, for the time of prayer, we see the family of God united in prayer, expecting to see God work. When we pray, we should be in earnest expectation of seeing the Lord work as we pray. And here we have Zechariah in the temple serving and praying while the people are outside praying. And what we're going to see is God showed up. We pray, pray with expectation. Pray expecting, as they did, to see God show up. So verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And normal. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now understand how amazing this moment is. It's not just an angel showing up. You're like, all right, there's an angel. Malachi was the last prophet to Israel. Since Malachi, the Lord has been silent with Israel for how long? 400 years. It's been 400 years since the nations heard from the Lord. And here in verse 11, the silence is broken. The wonder of this announcement was not simply the message for Israel, but what God was about to do, he was about to rescue the world. This is a big announcement. And Zacharias receives the news that his prayer has been heard. And then this just kind of raises the question, which prayer? Which prayer has been heard? He was in the temple as a representative of the people praying. So was he in the temple just up there praying for a son? Or was he praying with the nation and praying for the Redeemer, praying for the Messiah to come? What was his prayer? But Gabriel says, your prayer has been heard. And we cannot be completely sure, but I would say he's actually praying for the Messiah. That his heart is aligned with the nation as the people were outside. But the message actually that Gabriel gives him it has a twofold blessing to it. 
There's actually two things that happen here. This is what he says. He says, first, I just need you to know your prayer has been heard. And that the Messiah is coming to rescue and redeem hearts, not from the control of Rome. And secondly, your son is going to be the one to prepare the way for him and prepare the hearts of the people to receive him. It was a twofold. The Messiah is coming. And he's going to use your son, the one in your barren wife's womb, to prepare the way. And this was the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, right? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And can you imagine this moment for Zechariah? The silence has been broken between God and man. The Messiah is coming. The son of your barren wife is going to be the one to prepare the way. So obviously upon hearing all of this wonderful news in one moment, Zechariah broke out at that time immediately into praise and worship, right? Let's see. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. She might have liked to have spoke for herself. But this is what he says to the angel. And doesn't this sound like us sometimes, right? We hear the Lord speak. We're seeking the Lord. We're praying. We're desiring for him to do a work in our lives. And we begin to sense and see the Lord moving, and we immediately respond in doubt. And it's the one thing we've been asking for. Lord, we want the Messiah. Lord, I'd love to have a son. You're going to get it. You're getting both of them. It's a two for one. How can I know this? Really? How often do you have an angel show up at the side of the altar? But we respond like this. Lord, how can I be sure that this is really what you want for my life? Even though I've been praying, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? How can I be sure that this is you speaking when I'm praying and seeking you? Because you're praying and you're seeking him. That's how we should know. Lord, if you could just show me a little something or give me a sign. We're never satisfied sometimes when the Lord speaks. He speaks. We need to listen and we need to obey. How do we walk? We walk by faith and not by sight. And listen, when the Lord opens a door, he expects us to faithfully walk through it. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's a lot easier to see what the Lord is doing when you walk through the door rather than standing on the other side. And this is the same in your house. You stand on the other side of the door, it's hard to see what's going on in the other room. You walk into the room, you can see what's going on. If the Lord's opened the door in your life, Walk through it. See what he has for you. Zechariah says, you, you have a sign for me to be sure? That's why he's asking Gabriel. He's like, you got something that's a little more secure? Because I don't know if you've noticed. Do you see what he says? Me and my wife are old. That's what he tells Gabriel as if he doesn't know. And Zechariah, here's the thing. Zechariah knew the story of Abraham and Sarah. He knows the story of Isaac and Rebekah. By the way, all these women were barren. 
He knows the story of Jacob and Rachel, barren. He knows the story of Samson's mom, also barren. He knows the story of Hannah, Samuel's mom, barren. It's not that he hasn't seen or read of examples. He knows what the Lord can do when a womb is closed. And yet he asks, God can work with a barren woman. What's impossible for man is always easy for God. If he created the entire universe in six days, a closed womb seems simple. It's simple. And so how does Gabriel respond to Zechariah's unbelief? If ever there was a time you're like, man, I wish I didn't say that last part. That would have been it. Give me a sign. Sure, here it comes. Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Think about the first thing that Gabriel just says. Imagine just like, give me a sign. I stand in the presence of God Almighty. That's enough. That's enough. I stand there. He's not sitting. He's not kneeling. He stands in the presence of God. And he goes, I'm bringing you a message directly from him. He sent me here to speak to you. And it's a message of good news. Everything that he told him was fantastic. I don't want Michael to show up. Just read the stories that revolve around Michael. Not the one you want showing up. Gabriel shows up. He's got great news. And you're like, I'd like a little more. This is what we see. And he says, I'll give you a sign for your unbelief. And the sign to him was a punishment. He was mute. And he says, you're going to watch all of these things take place. You're going to see it. But you're not going to be able to say a word about it. And you will see that your unbelief actually can't even thwart the plans of God. And the simple reality is that nothing can ever thwart the plans of God. And we need to understand that unbelief calls God's ability into question. There's a high thing that happens there when you begin to doubt what God can do. You've just called the creator of the universe ability to do things into question. We literally say to God, our heavenly father, who is a good father, I don't believe you can actually do it. That's unbelief. Now listen, I know there are times when things happen in life when our faith is weak. But just ask him to meet you where you are. You know he will meet you where you are even when your faith is weak. Ask the father who had the demon-possessed son. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I know that my faith is weak. I know that there's hardly any there. It's just a mustard seed. And the Lord said, well, that's enough. I can work with that. And he met him where he was. We are told to trust the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. 
I mean, who knows more of what's going on in my life, me or the Lord? The Lord knows more of what's going on. He's the one who made me. That's the one we trust. Zechariah saw a physical limitation because of their age was also a limitation for God. God's not limited. And what's incredible is because here we see him take his eyes off of God and he puts them on his circumstances. Everything up to this point in time, right? He was righteous before God. His eyes were on the Lord. He was hopeful. He was praying. He was serving. He was faithful. He was obedient. The Lord brings some wonderful news. And then he's like, and now I doubt. And it's what happens when we shift our attention from the Lord and we begin to just look at the circumstances in life. It changes that. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord. We have to come to the place where we believe God can do anything. And understand this. It doesn't mean he's going to do everything you or I want. But just know that he can. God's not limited. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Verses 21 through 25. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own home. And now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah is in the temple way longer than normal. The people outside are like, uh, something's going on in there. We don't know what's happening. And the people are actually waiting outside because what would happen is when the priest finished his duties and everything he had in the temple, he would go outside and he would send the people away in prayer. He would pray over them. And there was a, Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. And then they would go. Except he came out and was like, I got nothing for you. <laughs> like, we would like to be sent away with our prayer. I can't. I lost my voice in there because, well, I, probably, I don't think I would want to be lined up and be like, I just want you to know, Gabriel was in there. I doubted him, and this is what happened. But he can. He can't say a word. But they perceive from all of that the fact that he couldn't say a word, the fact that he lingered in the temple too long, that something marvelous had happened. They just didn't know what. Little would they know, in just a short time, the Savior of the world would be born. It says he finished his days of service in the temple, obviously in silence, and then he went home. And it says shortly after, his wife is with child. She hides herself for five months. During that time, she would not be shown that she's pregnant. And she takes this time away to do what? Verse 25, she's praising the Lord for his abundant mercy and kindness towards her. And this is always the proper response. When the Lord is working in our lives, that's always the proper response. We just worship him. 
that we're found giving him the glory and the honor for all he has done, for all that he will do in our lives. We worship. And this is exactly how Zacharias should have been found in the temple upon receiving the wonderful news from Gabriel that he was just on his face before the Lord, worshiping him for the wonderful thing he was going to do. You're going to have a son. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Rejoice. Worship. Go and tell. And he couldn't. Worship will always be the right response. So here as we close, is your worship, your service or faithfulness and obedience to the Lord circumstantial? Just reflect upon it. Am I willing to serve the Lord no matter what? Am I faithful and obedient to all that he's called me to do? Am I just simply looking at my life or my circumstances? And just ask the Lord, Lord, if you just do these things, I'll be all in for you. Or are you just willing to say, Lord, no matter what, I'll serve you. And do you simply just love him and trust him? No matter what he's doing. Because you need to remember, God always has your best in mind. He always has our best in mind. And nothing is going to waver you or your faithfulness or your obedience to him when you understand he's always got your best in mind. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But whatever he's going to do is going to be the best for you. Trust him. He's trustworthy. Worship him. He's always worthy of our worship. And when Jesus has our whole heart, he's going to have our whole life. Does your heart belong to him? Because if it does, worship and service and faithful obedience will flow in every circumstance of our lives. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, that you use us. Uh, what a wonderful thing to know that we've been rescued and redeemed by you. Which is just amazing. Just our salvation alone is amazing. But the fact that you still desire to use us for your kingdom and glory is incredible. Lord, thank you. Thank you for using us. And Father, may our lives just truly be marked by faithfulness, by obedience. Lord, that our lives are completely surrendered to you. Lord, that we're just found day in and day out just wanting to abide with you, Lord. There's nothing greater Lord, than to just be before you. You love us so much. And Lord, may we just find that rest and that peace, that comfort that comes from abiding in your love, Lord. And Father, may our faithfulness, our service, never be circumstantial, Lord. Lord, we just look to the cross. We look to your wonderful sacrifice for each and every one of us. And we just simply say, yes, Lord, no matter what, no matter where, no matter how, Lord, my life belongs to you. 
I thank you for all these things we don't deserve, yet you freely give them to us. And we thank you for that. Lord, guide our hearts. Lord, guide our lives. We ask it in your name.